0: Remember to take it off mute. Hey, good morning, everyone. Great, great to be here. Right now, any of the students that I met last year are wondering, has he remembered his passcode for his iPad? And I have. (laughs) I stood in front of them all last year ready to share and could not for the life of me remember what my passcode was to get into my iPad. The most embarrassing thing, I had a safety feature today, my wife, um, because it's our anniversary. So you'd think I would have remembered it easily enough, but um, it's okay, we're there. Hey, it's great to see many friendly faces. Well, you're all friendly faces, but most of you. Um, No, but it's great to be amongst you. I bring greetings from New Life Church in Biggin Hill. Who's heard of Biggin Hill before? Excellent. That's more than me before God called me there. I told Fiona I felt like God was calling us to Burgess Hill. That was an awkward conversation. Um, but we won't go into that this morning. So I uh, had the privilege of being with some of the students last year. I've only just got over it, but it was an amazing time. Um, I never did university so that time a year ago was the closest I've ever got to being a student and it it was amazing I don't know how you guys do it for 3 or 4 years I one weekend exhausted me um, so yeah I'm Simon uh husband of one wife Fiona uh we have three children 19 17 and nearly 12 um, that's not their Names, that's just their ages. We called them um, Katie, who is our eldest, um, Amelia, who is in the middle somewhere, and then Ollie, who turns 12 next next month, beginning of March, doesn't he? See, I'm good at these date things. Um, <laughs> We've been in New Life Church, Biggin Hill, for nearly seven years, Um, and actually I just want to point out, because they are guests as well amongst us, there's a lovely couple just on the second row, Carla and Ant will hate me for doing this. They live in South Shields now, we used to be at church with them in Swindon, it's great to see them this morning as well, so welcome guys. Um, We were in Gateway Church, Swindon, before going to Biggin Hill, Fiona's dad, Andrew Leakey, some of you may have heard that name from many years ago, he planted the church in Swindon back in a long time ago. Um, and we were there. Fee was there from a child. Um, I moved there after four years of the church being established, and then worked in recruitment for 11 years, and then for the last 10 years or so, have worked for the church in various different ways. Now, look, there's no guilt or shame in this place. Amen? Yes. But if you do have a Bible, um, <laughs> feel free to take it, because this morning I'm going to be speaking to us uh, from the little book called Habakkuk. You know, that really popular book in the Old Testament, that one that preachers are always preaching out of and quoting from. Now, if your experience of church has been anything like mine, then I can hand on heart say, I don't think I've ever heard somebody preach out of Habakkuk. Um, I have, remember, a reference in a leadership training context Where somebody was arguing that the church's vision should be written down. Because in Habakkuk 2, God says to Habakkuk, write down the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. It makes you wonder what the vision is if you want to run away from it. But anyway, so Habakkuk, I I said to the guys on projection, we're not necessarily going to be looking at any particular verse. We're going to kind of be skimming in and around this book. It's only three chapters. Um, It's sandwiched between Nahum and Zephaniah. It's bunched together with the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Thirty-nine books in the Old Testament can be divided. Sorry to teach you to suck eggs, but it's helpful to give some foundation. It can be divided into the Pentateuch, or as the Jews call it, the Torah. So you've got the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Then we've got the historical books, telling us the story of the Israelites. And then we've got the poetic and wisdom books, like Psalms and Proverbs. And then finally, the prophetic books. And the prophetic books, they get subdivided down into major and minor. But that's not to distinguish who were better and worse. It really boils down to who had more to say than the other ones, really. So the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, and then the minor prophets of Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So it's only a small book. Three chapters, and in truth, we don't know a whole lot about Habakkuk. He lived in the final decades of Israel's southern kingdom, so around 640 BC to 586 BC, which was a time where the Babylonian Empire was growing and becoming a real threat. And you see, as you read his book, some of his concerns about that come through in his prayers to God. Now, when we look at other prophetic books... Often they'll be directly addressing the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. But Habakkuk's writings are really quite different. It's basically a record of his conversation with God. With him basically getting off his chest, all the doubts and frustrations and complaints he has to God, and then God's kind response to him. He could see the state of the world in which he was living in, and it was really bothering him. Why, God, why are you not doing anything about this? The suffering, the injustice, the evil. God, why aren't you doing something? My kids would say, that's relatable. You'd have to live under a rock, wouldn't you, to not see the evil that is in our world today. The pain and the suffering on a global scale, but then on a local scale and even On a personal scale, we would recognize, wouldn't we, that this world is far from perfect. Corruption, wars, suffering, injustice, financial worries, health worries. The list list goes on and doesn't get any better, does it? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Do you know, many of us, even today, can feel really overwhelmed with situations and circumstances, can't we? Our hearts and our minds can find themselves in a, in turmoil and we get that, that pit in the depth of our stomach as worry and fear rises up and a bit like emotional hives. Do you know what I mean? Can any of you relate to this? I genuinely wonder, and this is, I sit there sometimes, I think, how on earth can people make sense of this world or find any hope in this world without Jesus? For those of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, we can rest in the assurance of his faithfulness, can't we? We can be confident that even in the midst of the storms of our lives, God will not and has not abandoned us. We can be sure that as Romans eight twenty-eight 28 says, that, that we can know that for those who love God, all things work together for our good. And we can draw comfort from the promise of the psalmist in Psalm 23 that even when we're walking through the shadow of death, he's with us, guiding and comfort us. When we face the troubles of this world, whatever form they may come, we should not be surprised because Jesus promised them to us. It's not the kind of biblical promise you get on your desk calendar, is it? When I open up my desk calendar I want to be encouraged and yet one of the promises of Jesus is in John 16 verse 33 he promises this this you can rest you can bet your house on this although I don't encourage gambling you can bet your house on this this is what Jesus says in this world you will not may or or possibly but you will you will face trouble you'll have trials You'll have sorrows, as the New Living translates it. Wow, cheers, Jesus. That's a great promise, isn't it? Kind of flies in the face of the health and wealth prosperity preaching, doesn't it? Where Jesus says, no, 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 in this world, you are going to face trouble. You're going to have problems. But thank Jesus, he doesn't stop there. Because sure, you will face trouble, because in this world, it is broken, and it is defiled with sin, But Jesus goes on to say, take heart, be of full courage, because I, Jesus Christ, Lord of all the earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come, the name that is above every name, I have overcome this world. I have overcome this world. That is what Jesus says. The battle is already won, and yes, this world may and does suck. But with Jesus at your side, you have already overcome and conquered anything and everything that the world can throw at you. And this is where I personally find so much comfort and encouragement from the word of God. Amen? It's why when our brothers and sisters across the nations are contending for the gospel and face literally losing their lives for proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord, they gather an eternal perspective and what it is that Jesus has called them to, and as I look at this little book of Habakkuk, I draw such comfort for, and encouragement because, although it's classed as a prophetic book, it also has got like a real lamenting edge. When, I want to encourage you this afternoon, this evening. Go, just read it. It's only three chapters. That you can do that on the toilet. It's like, sorry, that was very irreverent of me. It only takes five minutes, um, but it's got a real lamenting edge. Habakkuk is crying out to God in the midst of turmoil. Just look at his opening line. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? That's hardly somebody who's on the top form of their life, is it? Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? And I'm sure some of us can relate to that kind of prayer, can't we? I keep on knocking, but the door is feels shut. I keep on asking, but my God seems deaf. I keep on seeking, but my God seems to be training for the hide and seek world championships. And we see this in some of the Psalms as well, don't we? The raw, real feelings of people who love God, but when they're faced with real challenges, when they're overwhelmed with circumstances, rather than trying to fake it, they and we are encouraged To actually to articulate it. To tell God what you're feeling. From a place of love and respect. But to lament. To cry out to God when all else is crumbling around us. It is okay to say, God, why? Because let's face it, it's pointless trying to fake it anyway. He knows. (laughs) He knows our very thoughts. He knows exactly how we're feeling. So ultimately, what is it that's stopping us from being real with him? It's our pride. We've got to get over that. But what is important, brothers and sisters, is that we don't stay there in that place of despair, in that place of anger, in that place of frustration. There's a biblical process for lamenting, which makes it sound really prescribed, but you see it time and time again. And interestingly, as I was kind of in this passage um, and preparing for this morning, I realized that as a family, we approach this kind of process in our family life. It's something we started to do when we spent a short amount of time living in India together and with one of our regions beyond churches in Mumbai. Beautiful church, beautiful nation. The kids were only 3, 9 and 11 and we'd never lived in another country before. In fact, Fee and I, we honeymooned in Cornwall. We have no we had no desire to go to the nations at all. Um, it was only through friendship that actually got us there. And it was a life changing experience, but we recognised really quickly that we needed to help each other process some of what we were thinking and feeling and, and wrestling with while we were in that really unnatural environment for us. So we adopted these three simple questions and we still use them now when there are flashpoints in life. And there's simply this. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What do you know? Because what we think can so easily shape how we feel. So let me give you a a fictional example from my family. Imagine as hard as it is that one of my kids were naughty. Now, obviously I have perfect kids, but... um, Like the only kind of, the sort of naughtiness that, the only true response left for me as a responsible adult was to tell them off. Now my kids are not here to defend themselves, so I cannot and I will not use a real scenario. But just imagine for a moment, one of them hit the other one, just saying, Now, any of you who have got brothers or sisters will know that the likelihood is the one that was hit probably deserved it. But you can't say that as a parent, okay? You have to be the adult in this moment and recognize regardless of what was said, they probably shouldn't have hit out. Again, hypothetically. So, punishment is coming and it would normally end up with the perpetrator, maybe taking a bit of time out, for instance. So we're not like super nanny, we didn't have a special step, but, you know, just get them out of the environment because it's gonna kick off otherwise. So, and then, once the dust has settled, one of us, kinda of play rock, paper, scissors to decide who was gonna go and do it, but one of us would end up having to, and depending on which one of the kids it was, would depend on whether you didn't mind winning or losing. Um, but there was, there's one in particular where you just want to just gently Gentle tap on the door. Anyway, um, we would you'd go in there and you'd sort of poke your head around the door. And that's where you'd begin to help them process what had happened and why. So we would begin with the question, what are you thinking? And normally, because the emotions are still quite high, it's only recently happened, they're like, I think it's not fair. I think you just don't like me. I think you only ever see it when I hit. I always am getting hit, but you only ever see it when I hit the other one. And there's a lot of emotion in those moments. Why is it always me that gets into trouble? So that's what they're thinking. Fine, fine. So what are you, what are you feeling then? Well, I'm feeling angry about that. Okay, fair enough. I'm feeling jealous that you love them more than you love me. Okay. I'm feeling a bit guilty, actually, because I didn't mean to break their nose. Again, hypothetically <laughs> speaking. I'm feeling a bit rejected because you sent me away when they deserved it. I know they deserved it. I didn't say that. You think that, but you... But once we've got through what are they thinking and what are they feeling, we then get to the crux of the matter. Okay. What do you know? Because we've got to get there. We can't just rely on the feeling, the, th- the thoughts and the feelings. We've got to get to what do you know? Actually, Dad, when I think about it, I know you love me. I know it was wrong for me to lash out. I know that you're trying to help parent me in a way that's going to help me to be a great contribution to society. <laughs> Said my two-year-old, never. Um, but <laughs> You see, what do you know? This is the key foundational truth of which we've got to allow to shape our thoughts and our feelings. And I think it's one of the reasons why Paul writes to the Romans to be transformed through the renewing of our minds, that we may think differently because that will also impact how we feel. What we see in biblical lament is thoughts and feelings being expressed, but thankfully they always land on truth biblical truths, foundations on which we can stand on in the most difficult of times. Here's one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 13. So it begins, what are you thinking? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Crumbs, that is definitely, the Psalmist is thinking he is abandoned in this moment, No? Okay, what are you feeling? Well, how long must I take counsel in my soul, and my sorrow be um, and sorrow be in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him; lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. Okay, but what do you know? But But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing because you have dealt bountifully with me. What we see in Habakkuk, I know that was Psalms, what we see in Habakkuk is him complaining to God, highlighting all the stuff that is wrong, calling on God the Almighty, the all-powerful God to do something about it. The first couple of chapters are back and forth between Habakkuk and God. And there are five woes in chapter two, which highlight the kinds of oppression that, and injustice that Habakkuk is seeing in the Babylonians. And the reality is, guys, as you look through chapter two, you'll realize that many of these practices still exist in our world today. The first two highlight the unjust economics of the nation. The rich getting richer, and the poor getting poorer. The third woe is about slave labor and how they're being exploited, building towns with blood and found, found, uh, founding cities on iniquity. I mean, that was in the news only recently Was one of the reasons people started to boycott the World Cup, because this very thing was taking place. The fourth woe is about the abuse of alcohol, which sadly is not only rife in our culture but even in our churches and then his final woe is about idolatry about wanting or craving or enjoying giving your heart to something or being satisfied by something or anything that you treasure more than you treasure god and so although habakkuk was written in a specific time to a specific people we can see these kind of issues can't we today we can see them in durham We can see them in the UK. We can see them across the nations. We could use Habakkuk's woes as a foundation for a prayer meeting and not run out of things to pray for, couldn't we? We may not carve wooden idols to worship, but idolatry is still alive and kicking. Oppression and injustice are still big issues in this world and in this nation. Modern day slavery is rife, and I believe as we, as the church, as the body of Christ, have a responsibility to stand up for injustice, to speak for those who don't have a voice and to model God's kingdom principles to our communities and to society. And then in chapter three, we see Habakkuk come to God and again in prayer, calling on God to act now, to show His power. Chapter three, verse one, he says this, "O oh Lord." I've heard the reports of you and your work, O oh Lord. I mean, as that dear friend shared about her struggles with fatigue, you kind of go, man, I've heard now, Lord, the reports of your faithfulness. It's like, I've heard the report of you and your work, O oh Lord. Do I fear it? In the midst of the years, would you revive it? Basically, come on, God. I know in the past you've stepped in. I know in the past you've broken through. I know in the past you've sorted this sort of thing out. Please do it again. How many of us have prayed prayers like that? I know I have. Praying for the sick. Lord, I know you can do this. Come on, God. We know you can do it. You've done it before. Please do it again. But in the midst, brothers and sisters, of perceived unanswered prayer. And I, I have to say perceived unanswered prayer. If I had more time, I'd tell you something of what I thought was unanswered prayer in my own life, which actually just turned out to God to being God's great gracious hand leading me. Um, but we see this perceived unanswered prayer. We don't always see how God is working, do we? We have to trust him. Do you sing that song, Waymaker? You know, look, even when we don't see it, we know you're working. Even when we don't feel it, we know you're there. We need to come back. To where Habakkuk lands. Okay, he, he's processed his thoughts. He's shared his frustrations and his feelings. And then in chapter three, verse 17, he lands on what he knows. He says this in verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail. And the f- fields yield no food. The flock is cut off from the fold. And there's no herd in the stalls. Okay, so just let's be clear for a moment. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. The challenges are still there. The answers to the prayers he's still praying are still waiting to be answered. And yet, here it is. Verse 18. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy from the God of my salvation. So where do you get your joy from, brothers and sisters? You see, if your joy is tied up in your good health, or in the good health of a loved one, or and sickness comes to your home, what happens is your joy is destroyed, isn't it? If you only take joy from a healthy bank balance or a good job, you will sooner or later realize it is simply superficial joy. Jesus says in John 16, that there is a joy that no man can take from you. There is a joy in knowing God, in having that assurance that he is working all things together for your good. That confidence that he is with you, that he has not left you or forsaken you. The joy and the security that you are his child. That he loves you with an everlasting love. That nothing or no one is able to snatch you out of his hand. There is a joy in knowing that your sins are forgiven. They're removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Brothers and sisters, there is a joy in our salvation. Which we can hold on to in the good times and in the bad There are many of you here today, and I don't know most of you, but there may be some of you here today who have never experienced that joy. You're caught up in the midst of your thoughts and feelings and feel like there is no hope. You don't know what it is to have those thoughts and feelings trumped with the truth that there is a God who loves you. That there is a God who died for you and there is a promise of life now in its fullness and for those, for all of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to encourage you, don't miss this opportunity this morning to declare with boldness the same declaration that Habakkuk and Christians all over the world can declare. That regardless of what this world and this life may throw at us, we can profess With confidence, chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, verse 19, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on high places. Deers have an incredible ability to be sure-footed on the most unstable of land. That's why Habakkuk uses a deer as an example, not because we should all have hooves or skinny legs, although some may want skinny legs and hooves, I don't know, but that's not the reason. He says, no, deers, they're able to be sure-footed even on the most unsteady of land. We can stand firm in the truth that God, our salvation, is still working his purposes out in and through us in the hardest of times. That he's our strength, that he's our confidence. Not in the economy, or in our health, or in anybody else. But our confidence is in our heavenly Father. And as the psalmist declares in Psalm 56, this I know, that my God is for me. Even in the midst of all this world can throw at us. And then Habakkuk, he lands on the truth, that God is faithful. Not that God was faithful, or that God will be faithful. But that God is faithful. That he loves us. And he loves this world more than we do. And his desire is to see his kingdom advance today. In this city, in the surrounding cities and towns and villages. And to the ends of the earth. And the incredible thing is that he uses ordinary men and women like you and like me to see his kingdom advance, to see his rule and his reign across this community, across this nation and across the nations. Are you up for that? I think, do you normally land with worship? Because I'd love us to come back to worship. But can I encourage you just for a moment to maybe just close your eyes, only because then you're not distracted by this horrific shirt I'm wearing today. (laughs) You just want to close your eyes for a moment. There's a there's a lot in this little book that I think we can relate to. There's a lot of Habakkuk's raw honesty of the desperation of the situation that he sees around him and in, his, and in his own circumstances that I think we can relate to. And I just recognize that the odds are in a room this size, there are going to be people who are lamenting right now. There are going to be some of us who are in that place of desperation, in that place of, but God, oh Lord, would you do something? Are you, are you, can you not hear me? And so in this, in this moment, as our eyes are shut and it's just between us and God, I want to encourage you to maybe just to hold your hands out before you and just to be honest with God about where you're at. Say, Lord, I've been distant. Lord, I, I'm confused. Lord, I'm struggling with this. I'm battling with that. And then just allow the Holy Spirit to come. And to minister to you in the midst of that. That pain, that struggle, that insecurity, whatever that may be. He is the lifter of our heads. He is our firm foundation. He is our safe refuge. He is our strong tower. And Lord, I pray right now, Lord, before we come back into worship, Lord, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, would you minister to the hearts and minds of those who, right now, Lord, they need you? They're crying out to you, Father. And pray, Holy Spirit, would you reveal again the Father's love? Would you reveal again grace and mercies, Lord? Would you refit them again, Father God, with feet like the deers? Lord, would you bring strength and power and encouragement? Lord, that even if the fig tree is still not blossoming, Lord, even if the, the herd is cut off, Lord, that they would be able to rest in the assurance that there is joy in you, Father God, that you are our strength, that you are our salvation. We worship you, Lord if you particularly would like specific prayer, just turn to somebody you're with or someone around you or and just don't miss this opportunity. Say, would you pray for me? Would you speak faith again into me? Would you strengthen me in this moment? Come, let's worship God together.